Well, good evening, friends. It is uh, really good to be here. You come to places like this, and you walk in and you get things like this. Right? Like, this is pretty special. So, that going home on the fridge. I don't get a lot of artwork to put on my fridge, so I'm looking forward to putting that up. Thank you, Ellen. So, bring greetings, of course, from, from your brothers and sisters at Grimsby. Uh, there's been a kind of lot of pulpit exchanges in the last little while. Um, uh, Matt is down at Delhi today, so I was preaching there this morning. Wolf is preaching there tonight. You're lending us AJ. He's coming our way next Sunday morning. We're looking forward to that because I think, is Matt coming here or somewhere else? Yeah? <laughs> oh, he's a pilgrim. He's a pilgrim. Okay. I can't keep up. Like, there's just too many things going on, but we do bring their greetings, and their love. I have discovered I cannot wear my glasses anymore. I can't read. My glasses are on, which is a strange thing for glasses. So you're a little fuzzy, but the words are more clear. So that's what counts. So I'll have you turn to the passage in Luke, Luke chapter 4. And as you're turning there, just a a little word about authority. We know that there are positions in society that are granted various levels of authority by the society. Governments, they enact legislation that's binding on its citizenship, laws that they enact, and we look to submit to them where we can. The justice system ideally interprets and enforces laws as opposed to creating them, but they do that in order to keep order within a society. Parents, to a degree, we thank God, are still granted authority in the lives of their children, though our society would like to pull more and more of that away from us, but we still enjoy as parents uh, authority when it comes to our children. And the odd thing is that the authority exists whether the ability to wield it exists or not. Because there are people in positions of authority that should not have authority because they seem simply incapable of dealing with it. There's also authority that we sense in particular individuals who have no official position. In a group, a leader may naturally emerge as a result of his or her intelligence, power of speech, perhaps they've got a compelling, charismatic character, perhaps a strong financial base, higher levels of education, greater depth of experience. There's lots of reasons to allow an individual to take on a position of authority within a group. We also know that a person or an individual may be an authority on something, a particular subject, a period of history, economic forecasting, the nature of indigenous wildflowers in places like Saskatchewan. That's a big one. And uh, those kinds of authorities, we've heard about them. Like for the last two years, we have had it up to here with experts, right? (laughs) This expert says this, this expert said that. They're in the same area and they say opposite things. So we hunt and try to track down the people that we can really trust, people that we know know what they're talking about. Now, some individuals, we know when they speak with authority, they can speak on an issue and people listen, which is, which is good, because there are people I have discovered that know more than me. Yes, yes, it was a hard lesson, but it is indeed true, and I need to go to those people to understand and learn things that I don't really know. Now, some people simply exert authority, based on nothing more than having the nerve to be the most authoritative. 
Right? They simply take over in a particular group. Sometimes they simply call our bluff, daring us to challenge them. Well, when we come to this account in Luke, we're going to find here a very different kind of authority. Because here we're going to find a unique authority, authority unlike any authority we find in the world. It's not common. It's perfectly objective. It's not natural. We're going to see, of course, that it is a supernatural authority. It's a godlike authority. And when it emerges, when it's displayed, it often stops people dead in their tracks and causes them to wonder and causes them to question. So we read here of an authority that supersedes all others, and that is the authority of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. So we're going to look at the passage under two headings. Uh, It's fairly straightforward. First of all, we're going to see the authority of Jesus revealed in his teaching, and then we'll see the authority of Jesus revealed in his actions. And the two certainly overlap and they interact. At this point, we know Jesus is early in his ministry. He's traveling from place to place, mostly in the area of Galilee. And at this point, he's come down to the town of Capernaum, which ultimately will become his his hometown. Remember that time when people are looking for him? Well, he's at his home. He He was in Capernaum. Jesus, at this particular point, is in for a very busy day. And it's the Sabbath. And he would go to the synagogue where invariably he would be asked to step up and to read and perhaps to make comment on what it was he was reading. The word of Jesus had spread in the area, and when he came into a synagogue, people would recognize him and they would invite him to do this. Uh, We won't read the verses, but back in verses 16, 17, 20, 21, and 22, they're talking about him in, um, in Nazareth. Same kind of thing is happening. That was the situation where when he spoke and he said, you know, this, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing today and the people went a bit berserk. And uh, now he's come down to Capernaum. And we're seeing here that exactly the same thing has happened. He's come to the synagogue and he has read and he has taught. Now when he did, the people's reaction was quite different from that given to other readers. There were other people who would come, usually scribes, some of the, the, the teachers, They would read and they would teach, and there was something distinct about what they heard that day from Jesus. Now, we're not told what he taught. We see that when he was in in Nazareth, but now in Capernaum, we're not told the content of the message. We're simply told the response, the response to his message by the people. So he comes into the synagogue, and he reads, and he teaches. Well, the people, their response is really quite... I think phenomenal in terms of their experience. Because the word we read here is that the people were astonished. They were dumbfounded. I think the Greek literally means they were struck out of themselves. Now the picture that comes to mind for me is Dr. Strange. And when the, the one body emerges from the other body and they're literally struck out of themselves and they're astonished. Well, these people, they sat, they, they had never heard anything like this before. And so we don't want to undersell how the people reacted to this word. I'm not sure the last time you were astonished by something that you heard somebody say. Well, we need to keep in mind who the speaker is here, Jesus himself. And the word he brings astonishes the people. So they're out of their senses in amazement 
and wonder. So whatever the message was that day, it certainly caught the attention of the people listening. Well, why would it catch their attention? Uh, two reasons, I think. Uh, first of all, they knew who Jesus was. They would look at each other. And the same as in Nazareth, they say, isn't this Jesus? Isn't he Joseph's son? Isn't he carpenter? Other places we hear he's had no teaching. Where, where did he learn all these things? How does he understand these things? So just in terms of who he was in a societal sense, this was shocking that he was able to do things that no one else in his situation would ever be able to do. But I think more significantly, it was because his word, his message, his manner, his teaching came with an authority that they had never seen or heard or experienced before. Because there was power in this word. There was power in it. And this isn't just a pep talk. This isn't a pregame speech to try to get you excited about the game. And it's not a rah-rah kind of thing. Jesus is speaking to them about real issues. He's speaking to them about his Father in heaven and a relationship they need to have with them ultimately through him. And yet there was power and authority. It was new, it was something different, and it was evident to everybody in the room. Because what Jesus had to say carried a certain unique weightiness that wasn't evident in the usual teaching of the other rabbis and religious leaders who often simply quoted previous rabbis. And previous teachers, they would read the writings of people from centuries before and resurrect them and share them with the people. I'm going to suggest six things that might have made Jesus' teaching uh, unique in their hearing. Number one, uh, he always spoke the truth. He always spoke the truth. And I think scribes, other teachers, they could often use a corrupt, sometimes evasive reasoning in terms of what it was they were teaching. But Jesus spoke the truth. Two, he presented matters of great importance. When you look at the things that Jesus talked about, he talked about life and death and eternity, while the others seemed to major on minors. We see the mind, a little bit into the mind of the scribes, in Matthew 23, 23. Jesus, in the woe chapter, largely to the scribes and Pharisees, but also to the lawyers and the teachers. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus, when he spoke, spoke to matters of the heart, issues that were essential to everyday life. And uh, he was focused on the, on the needs of the people. And number three, I'd suggest Jesus' teaching was systematic, not chaotic and rambling. For example, we'll read the Sermon on the Mount and see how he unfolds things in just this magnificent way. And that's just one example of one 40-minute sermon that the Lord gave. He would have given dozens, perhaps hundreds of messages in his time. And uh, he, was, he was systematic because he always had a purpose in what it was he was teaching. Number four, he excited curiosity with his many illustrations. Jesus wasn't dull. He wasn't dry as a teacher. He spoke about wineskins and trees and birds and seeds and building houses and specks and planks in people's eyes and straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. There was a picturesque aspect to his teaching that got people's attention and, uh, and spoke to their hearts. Number five, he spoke as the lover of men and he pointed them to the Father and his love 
while the scribes and Pharisees revealed their hearts in other ways. Jesus was always pointing them to the Father, always to the Father. And we read in Luke 20, verse 46, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The scribes, it seemed, in terms of the life they lived, was always, look at me, look at me, look at me. Whereas Jesus was always saying, look to the Father, look to the Father, look to the Father. And then lastly, it's, I think, the focus of this particular section. Jesus spoke with with authority. Because Jesus spoke directly from the heart of the Father. And he also spoke directly from his own person, his own being, in his own heart. And he spoke from the scripture perfectly and clearly all the time. Because he himself was the living fulfillment of the scripture. He was the living word. So when he presented the word, he was presenting himself. And people thought, this is not what the scribes do. The scribes weren't presenting Jesus. The scribes were not presenting God the Father the way they should have. And so when the people heard it, they were astonished. The scribes, unfortunately, were drawing water from broken cisterns. While Jesus himself didn't draw from full cisterns, he... He's the living water. He's the fountain. He's the source. And so when he spoke, it came from him. It wasn't someone else <clears throat> through him. He spoke of himself. And the contrast was so great. The people would ask the question, who is this man? They were getting an early glimpse of what time in scripture would reveal more fully as Jesus fulfilled his ministry. Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this, talking about Jesus. We assert him, we proclaim him, we start with him because he is the ultimate and final authority. We start with the fact of Jesus Christ because he really is at the center of the whole of our position and the whole of our case rests upon him. I love people who can put things together in that tight way and yet still be clear. Everything, everything we have, everything we are rests on Jesus Christ. So the really big claim in the New Testament is for the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus. We can look to some of the things that Jesus said. There are many places we could go. I'm going to look just at uh, some of the I am claims of Jesus, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, he said, except through me. That is quite the claim. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice. And then when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we read that amazing thing. You have heard that it was said in times past, but I say to you. And so he goes to scripture and reminds him of what was written in the Old Testament. Then he says, but I say to you. And he has the authority to expound and to expand and to clarify uh, what it was they knew from scripture. And then when you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have that most remarkable statement. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like this. Everyone who does not hear these words of mine and do them is like this. He draws the attention back to himself. Why? Because he is the authority. He's the authoritative one that has come from God. So Jesus has been granted all authority in heaven and on earth. God the Father says, hear him. Listen to him. 
That was part of our message at Grimsby this morning, was that little phrase, this is my, this is my son, um, listen to him. And that's what Christians do. That's one of the identifying marks of a Christian. That's what tells the difference between someone who is from God and someone who is not from God. Someone who is walking with Christ and someone who is not walking with Christ. Is, do we listen to him and seek to put into practice the things he says? So there we have the, the authority of Jesus revealed uh, somewhat in his words. Now we're going to come to the second point, the authority of Jesus revealed in his actions. Now in his actions, there are also words involved. It's not just actions. There are things he says as well, but now it's something that he actually does. Jesus has come into the synagogue and he encounters a man possessed with a demon. Now demon possession is distinct from insanity, some sort of dissociative illness, Not all illness is caused by evil spirits, but scripture makes it clear that there were occasions when a spirit being, a demon of some sort, took possession of a human body. They were able to speak with their voice. They were able to do all the things a human would normally do. They could walk, they could eat, and so on. Um, So the spirit could answer when addressed. We see that in this particular account. But then we see it's also possible for them to be instantly cast out by the word and power of Jesus. Now, do we see where this meeting takes place? Not in some dark alley. That's where you'd expect to find evil spirits, right? Some dark alley, some dark corner, some dungeon of some kind. Now, where are we? We're in the synagogue. We're in the synagogue. A demon-possessed man has come in to the synagogue. The devil, I've read in places, uh, will come into the midst of a synagogue if he thinks it will serve his purpose. One commentator made this point. I don't remember who it was. But he said, the devil never misses a service. Right? Because he's looking. He's on the hunt. If he can distract, if he can implant a bit of a lie to detract people from what the truth of Scripture is, if that has to be in a synagogue or a church, he'll be there. He will. And we see that here in this case uh, with Jesus. So the unclean demon is certainly aware of Jesus, and he cries out at the top of the man's voice. Now, I've had a few distractions in church services before. (laughs) Remember we had the one guy come up to the front and started asking questions of the pastor? He was one of our visiting pastors. I forget who it was. Um, Yep, it was that guy. And it really threw him off. And I remember going over and sitting down beside him, just kind of quietly talk to him. And I looked over my shoulder, and who was coming up but Jeroen and Henry Van Beek? And they were coming up, and it was like, don't worry, Mark, we'll deal with this. But the guy kind of quieted down, and it wasn't, uh, didn't end up being a big deal of any kind. Uh, I don't think I've ever been in a service where something like this happened, right? where someone would cry out at the top of his voice anything. Well, all attention will be drawn to this man at this particular point. The NIV says this. It's what the the demon said. Go away. What do you want with us? I like the ESV where it uses that word, ha, which is short for let us alone. Like, let us alone. Let me alone in this particular case. What have you to do with us? Literally, the question is, what is there to us and you? Or what have we in common with you that you would want to have anything to do with us? See, the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. He gives him two titles. He says, I know who you are. I know that no one else in the room did. 
Like no one else knew who Jesus was at that time, other than Jesus and this demon. So his two identities. On earth, he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. That's what people knew him as. He says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. But then he also gives him a name from heaven. And he identifies him. He says, you're the Holy One of God. Now that must have burned his mouth saying that. To look at Jesus. But he had to confess because he knew exactly who he was. This is a place where a lie's not going to work. He's not, it's not going to do any good when he's, he's sitting before his creator, when he's sitting before his sustainer, when he's sitting before his ultimate judge. No, he has, to be, he has to be honest, and he does. And he speaks up, and he says, no, you're the Holy One of God. Elsewhere, demons call him the Son of the Most High. In another place, they call him the Son of God. They know who Jesus is. So there are things that evil spirits know and understand. Uh, we're familiar with that verse in James 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. So there are things that they're certainly aware of, especially on a spiritual level. Well, we can understand why they would tremble. They know there's no salvation for them. That there's only judgment. And here he's confronted with his great opponent. His great enemy. Isn't it amazing? We look at Jesus. And he's our savior. He's our Lord. He's our... He's a friend beyond friends. He's the friend who lays down his life for us. But the demon sees him. He trembles because he's he's the opponent. He's the one who ultimately will bring him to judgment. He's the one about whom John tells us in 1 John 3.8. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Wow. Well, here's one of the works of the devil. In this man, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath. So the unclean spirit certainly had grounds to tremble. And he asked this question, have you, have you come to destroy us? I think we can imply from that, have you come to destroy us already? Like he knows a judgment is coming. But I think he's really asking the question, like have you come now to destroy us? And then come from where? Like is he saying, have you come down from Nazareth to destroy us? No, no, he's saying, have you come from heaven? He knows where he's come from. He knows it. There was a time when this demon sat at the feet of the triune God and worshipped. At the time of creation, before the fall of the angelic beings, he was someone like other angels who would worship and honor God, but he was deceived along with multitudes of others by Satan himself and ultimately led to their fall and being cast down to the earthly realm. So he had good reason to fear the end, um, this idea of destroying us already. But he doesn't understand the time frames of God. Now, I've always found it interesting that Jesus makes this comment that he, Jesus doesn't accept acknowledgement from these beings. And yet the acknowledgement is there. And I think the acknowledgement is there for us. It's there to remind us that there is a demonic world and they understand completely who Jesus is. And even though we're not to take our lead from the demonic world and their confessions, I don't think we can ignore it either because it's a true statement that comes from a being who knows better than anybody in that synagogue exactly who Jesus is. But anyway, Jesus shuts him up pretty quick. Uh, He's short and he's terse with him in his rebuke. He says, be silent. Be Be quiet. Come out of him. Just a statement. Just the words. 
There's a final twisting of this host, a hurling of him in the midst of the people, and he comes out as commanded, and the man is unhurt. There's nothing wrong with the man. Uh, the Lord has delivered him. The demon had no choice but to obey his creator and to obey his judge, because this is the anointed of God. This is the one who has authority to do the Father's will. Yet in all of this, the man wasn't hurt because the demon was allowed to go this far and no further. And then the Lord stopped his input altogether. So what are the people? Well, they're already amazed. They're amazed by the power and substance of Jesus' preaching and his teaching just in his message. But now they see a glimpse of his power, a glimpse of his power in action. And could they be any more amazed? Well, apparently so. It's interesting that this is in Capernaum, and the people seem to have this positive response. And what do we read later of the city of Capernaum? So few works were done there because there was such unbelief. Even though they had witnessed and heard and saw these things, there was still rampant unbelief in the area. And we're told that it will be worse for Capernaum in the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah because of the light that had been revealed there. So we need to pay attention to the fact that the people are amazed, but for most of them, that's as far as it went. It's as far as it went. We see the, uh, we see the emphasis in verse 36. They ask this question, what is this word? Like, what is this word? They could have easily asked, who is this word? And they'd be accurate there as well. He says, for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. It reminds us in terms of just the word of God. We go to Genesis, right? And God said, let this happen. And it happened. That's the power of the word. Um, we have uh, in Hebrews and in John 1.1, about Jesus being the creator. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through him. And nothing that was created was created without him. Uh, it was all created by his word, by the word of his power. And the people were seeing a glimpse of that. Even though they already existed in a world that had come into being by the word of that power. Now they were just getting a glimpse of the power and the authority of Jesus. Well, it didn't take long for word to spread. Word does spread even in those days. It was all virtually word of mouth. And uh, two people told two people. Then you get exponential growth, right, um, as it spreads out, like wildfire, till the whole region was a buzz about Jesus. Now, I had mentioned earlier that Jesus was going to have a busy day. If you kept reading in verses 40 and 41, at the end of the Sabbath after sunset, um, he spent a lot of time in terms of healing. So remember, all these things are taking place in Capernaum. Now look at uh, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them all and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Well, this is, this is what someone who has authority can do. And Jesus has unique authority as we said right at the beginning. The authority of Jesus was constantly on display during his ministry. Here we have two manifestations uh, in his teaching and in his actions. There are other ways in which he demonstrated his authority as well. A few lessons to close. Number one, being astonished, amazed, 
impressed by Jesus just is never enough. It's never enough. Uh, genuine faith is needed. Remember in Nazareth, after he spoke and the people were really impressed, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Uh, here in Capernaum, it seems the people remained amazed for a time, but it wore off. And they got back to business, just the regular business of their life. So sometimes when we're witnessing with people, they will look impressed or amazed or struck by something that we said. We need to pray that that will continue, that it's not something that is just a one-off. And then they move on with their regular life. So we seek to intervene and look for those opportunities to speak to them again and again if we possibly can. Number two, we need to be vigilant about the wiles of the devil. We're reminded here of the existence of the demonic world and the devil's work in our, in our midst. Uh, he's still active. His influence is everywhere. His great power is in what? It's really not in demon possession. I mean, that happens on occasion. I, I don't know of anybody who is demon-possessed. I've spoken to missionaries who seem to clearly talk about what seems to be demonic possession. Um, I don't see how else to explain it. I don't think there's a reason to try to explain it other ways, but that's not his main method of getting it. It's deceit. It's lies. That's what he does. And he's subtle. And he knows us. So he plants these little things. And he redirects us away from the truth. Anything he can do to divert our attention. If he can't stop us from being Christians, he wants us to be lousy Christians. If he can take away our witness and our ability to serve, oh, that's a victory for him. And so we need to be on watch. Always. The devil is about. He is there as a roaring lion. And he's still looking to devour where he can. Number three, even though the preaching and the demon expulsion most impressed the crowds, what we can't overlook is Jesus' compassion. Because there was a man out of whom a demon was cast. The tension never goes back to him. We're told that he wasn't hurt, but then the attention goes back to the crowd. But we need to realize there's a man who walked into that synagogue possessed by a demon. And he walked out free. And that's compassion. That's love. That's what Jesus did. He showed his compassion and demonstrated his compassion. He didn't show his authority to impress people. He never put on big displays. Yeah, he just, he had a purpose. And he looked at people and his heart went out. His heart went out because they were sheep without a shepherd. And so he he showed his love toward them in so many wonderful ways. And then lastly, uh, certainly there may be, there is no hope for the unclean spirits who rebelled against God. Their judgment is fixed. These are individuals who spend every moment of every day in terror of the coming judgment. They know it's coming, and uh, they're not going to be able to get away from it. But we're glad that for sinners, for sinners in this world, there, there is hope. There is absolute hope. Individuals who desire forgiveness, They desire a cleansing from sin. They're looking for a new start. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for compassion. That's all to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we direct them, isn't it? To the same Jesus who was in the synagogue who cast out this demon. He's the same today. And he has the same heart. And so we encourage people. We encourage family members. We encourage our children. We encourage our friends, our co-workers to consider their souls and to come to Jesus, believe on him and to be saved. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, 
We read this about Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given to me. That is a massive amount of authority because it's all authority. Every other authority is under Jesus' authority. Governments, churches, wherever you find a level of authority, it's all underneath the authority of Jesus. And then the last verse, John 17, verse 2, he said, Since you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And that's what Jesus does. We turn to Jesus and we're saved. He's the absolute authoritative one who has power to forgive sins and wash you from darkness and to save your eternal soul. And we praise God for that. Amen. Thank you.